0: Hey there, welcome to another episode of the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell. I'm going to start out this week's intro with some hard-to-admit truth. I have spent a good part of my kids' lives over-parenting. And if I'm being totally transparent, I still struggle with it. You too? will join the club. Based on the number of interviews I've done, today marks number 75, by the way, And the numerous casual conversations I've had with parents, we are a society of overparenters. Call us helicopters, bulldozers, or whatever the name you might have for it. At the end of the day, we are micromanaging our kids' lives. And while we might do less of it as our kids become teenagers and ultimately adults, I, for one, have spent way too much time trying to steer my kids in one direction or another. This week's guest is an expert on this topic, and our conversation is one that is worth a listen no matter how old or young your kids might be. I'm joined today by the amazing Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie's the New York Times bestselling author of the anti-helicopter parenting manifesto, How to Raise an Adult. If you have not yet seen her TED Talk, make that a priority in your life today. It is packed full of raw truth that you might not want to hear, but believe me when I say it is absolutely worth your time. Julie's latest book, coming out in April, is called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. It's written for the young adult audience. During our conversation, Julie shares her wisdom and experience as a former dean at Stanford University and as a parent of two now young adults. This episode is longer than most, but Julie provided so much valuable advice and actionable tips that I knew I had to air the entire conversation. I'm grateful to Julie for making time to speak with me and for being so open and honest about her own experience and that of her family. There's so much in this conversation. Let's get started. Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for being here today on the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.
1: Hi, Betsy. I have to say this is the best podcast name I've encountered. So I'm just delighted and excited to be here. Oh, well,
0: thank you. I I really appreciate that. I can't take all the credit. My husband helped me come up with it. But it really, to be honest, captured the essence of what I wanted this podcast to be because as a parent of teens, it became clear to me that once kids step foot on the high school campus, they're onto the wheel and they're running and running and running until they're off to their next stop, whatever that might be. And, you know, for my listeners, you're a household name for me. Um, You may be for many of my listeners. um, I'm delighted to have you here this today. And we're going to get into a lot. You're TED Talk, your previous book, your new book, which is so exciting. Um, But before we do that, would you mind just taking a minute or two and giving a quick intro to my audience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, I want to thank you for giving a shout out to your partner and husband. Um, My guy keeps coming up in all my stories. Um, And I think one of my meta pieces of um, gratitude and advice is our primary relationships can be you know some of the most life sustaining elements within our lives, and so taking that time to just express that gratitude and building a practice around that is um, is important. And but I digress. Okay, so who am I? I am um, I am coming to you from Silicon Valley, California. I'm in Palo Alto, a very hamster wheel type of town. Um, Fifty three years old. I'm a biracial Black woman who grew up mostly in white spaces. I have a white Jewish husband. My two children are 21 and 19, um, a former college dean at Stanford. I was, I'm was i in my third career now as a writer and speaker. Originally, I was a corporate lawyer. Uh, then I became a dean at Stanford, and now I write and speak about the issues that I care most about. I think I've always tried to use language um, to make a difference or to make things better. That's what drew me to law. Um I'm I'm deeply interested in rooting for all of us to make it in this journey of life, um, and um, and you know, like I said, so now I write books about the things I care about. Um, my first book was How to Raise an Adult, about the harm of overparenting, which I was seeing the cumulative effects of on my college campus. Uh, I was basically witnessing how childhood had changed, and therefore how differently prepared college students were for the greater freedoms and independence and responsibilities that attend you when you are 18 to 22 and on a college campus. My second book is a um, memoir, a very vulnerable share about my life as a Black and biracial person in white spaces, dealing with microaggressions and racism and how that plunged me, uh, took me out of the innocence of early childhood into what I call self-loathing Or we might say internalized oppression, and then back to a place of self love once I did the work. And then this new book is for young adults struggling with adulting, those young adults who feel adult ish, maybe not completely adult ing. And um, it's really born out of my absolute compassion and respect for young people as they leave home and go out into the world and fashion this life for themselves. So that's a little bit about me in a nutshell.
0: Wow, that is a one of the best intros I've heard on this podcast. And I, I love that your book is so open and vulnerable. You say in the book, lead with vulnerability. Um, and I love that. I think that's such great advice for young people. I think they struggle with it. I know mine do anyway, my teens. Um, but I do wanna talk about the book. Can we talk a little bit about your journey? Because you, you also said in the book, how did I make such poor choices on my own behalf? So can we go back a little bit to like high school, even, you know, teenage years? Did you have a plan in mind? Did you feel like you were being pressured by your parents, friends, society? Like how how was that for you as a teenager?
1: Yeah. Um, so what I'm going to describe is my own personal version of something so many of us go through for, you know, myriad reasons. So I hope that listeners, if you can't specifically relate to my particular flavor of this scenario, you know, lean into whether you can relate kind of tangentially or, um, you know, for, for similar reasons. Um, I was definitely raised in a high-achieving, high expectations family. My parents, my father, had an MD. He was one of the my he was one of the first black doctors in America. But actually, his father, who was also black, was literally one of the first black doctors in America. Um, my father was this important guy in public health. Had been an, a, an appointee of President Jimmy Carter. Um, So that was a big deal. My mother has a PhD in science education. So my parents are both very science and math oriented. Um, It was clear to me that I was going to college. It was not a matter of if, it was where. I'm the youngest in a blended family. Everyone was college educated. Some had advanced degrees. So there was a lot of pressure around that. And I was smart and hardworking and type A and all of that. And so it wasn't hard for me to perform and produce and all of that, but um, it was nevertheless an environment where I, for example, got grounded one weekend in high school um, because of my grades were not all A's. Um, And I think in hindsight, that was a little bit extreme. Um, But anyway, um, fast forwarding to my comment in the new book, Your Turn, the one for young adults about how I made such a poor choice on my own behalf, um, in my own behalf. Um, so I went off to Stanford university, um, decided to go to law school because I had learned as an undergraduate, how fantastic law was as a way to make society better. You know, Martin Luther King talked about bending the arc of history more toward justice. And it was clear that law was a big, force bending that arc. And I wanted to be a part of it. So off I went to law school to make society more equitable, to to be a voice for marginalized people, like African-Americans, like poor people, like Native Americans, like queer people, like all, you know, the various people who have systemically, historically mattered less to this country. I wanted to go to law school for them. Trouble was, I can tell you now with the knowledge I have of myself as a 53-year-old, And frankly, I was developing this awareness through my thirties and into my forties, but I couldn't, I didn't know this about myself in my twenties as my point, when I went to law school, though I went to help humans, I was so desperately insecure as a young black and biracial woman inhabiting prestigious, predominantly white institutional spaces though I went to law school to help humans with my law degree, I emerged from law school with that law degree and went and took a corporate law job. And I did that solely because of my own insecurities that I will not matter to society as the person i am unless i have this imprimatur of legitimacy ie corporate job like yes you got a corporate offer you are smart you are capable you know you have made it i was i realize in hindsight desperately seeking that approval so there i was at a silicon valley law firm a great law firm, very kind, hardworking people who gave me opportunity, mentored me. I was doing quite well. I was paid very well. And the trouble was, the point you've cited in my book, uh, me saying, how did I make such a poor choice on my own behalf? I was successful and well-paid and Betsy miserable. So here I was nine months into the work. My doctor was telling me, take your blood pressure because at work because I'm concerned your blood pressure is high when you come to see me. Turned out my blood pressure was was high at the doctor's office because I was nervous. But Low in the morning, low in the evening, high at work. So I was having high blood pressure because of my job. Um, I was desperately unhappy. I would get a knot in my stomach every Sunday at about two in the afternoon, knowing I have to go back in there tomorrow. And, you know, it wasn't that there was anything inherently problematic. Nice, kind people who cared about me. I was on a great team. I'm not knocking any of them. I'm not knocking the profession. Some people want to be corporate lawyers. The point was, I didn't. I had not gone to law school to protect corporate interests vis-a-vis the interests of other corporations. You know I had gone to law school. I've told you now multiple times, listeners, right? I'm saying it so frequently to let you know, like, I even knew I wasn't meant to be doing this, and yet I was doing this. Why? How did I make such a poor choice? Because I was insecure because I needed the applause and approval of society, which I thought meant go get a corporate job. Turned out it was sort of sucking the life out of me, making me feel miserable. And the beautiful aspect of that difficult experience is that often it takes the misery or the really terrible life event Something big to jar us out of this, like, I can't believe I'm doing this work. Something to make us realize, you know what? Maybe there's actually a better way, a better path. And so I'm grateful that I had the miserable experience because it clarified for me, oh, no, 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 no. You want to be helping humans at the level of the individual human. You need to do that work regardless of how much applause you get from society or your peers or your family or how big a paycheck comes with it julie you are here on the planet to help humans please try to redirect yourself back toward that work
0: wow and isn't that true for so many people yeah me me included i spent 20 years in corporate america and and same did well made great money you know, on paper, it was successful, but I always knew there was something missing that it just wasn't the same. I I should be working with humans, young yeah. humans in my mm-hmm. case. But mm-hmm. so let's, this is a good segue because let's talk about chapter five because, and I do want to talk about your TED talk and your first book or your previous book, But yeah. but this is a great space, I think, to talk about chapter five. So in your turn, chapter five, stop pleasing others. They have no idea who you are. Yeah. So it sounds like, from what you're saying, that's kind of where you were, right? You thought this is what you should be doing, but you knew, you knew deep inside that you wanted to be somewhere else. And it's, do you think it was based on, and we see it now, right? Societal definition of success. Peer pressure, all those things. What do you think
1: drove you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And let me just say, as an aside, I love that we're focusing on chapter five because um, I have had a contract to write Your Turn for four and a half years, and I failed to write it successfully for about three years. And I just couldn't find my way into this giant topic of giving young people advice on how to live their best adult life. And then finally, I said, you know what, Julie, when you were a dean, You would talk with students constantly about these topics. See if you can't summon your deanly voice and your deanly topics. And chapter five is the, although it is chapter five out of 13 in the final book, it is the very first material I wrote that my publisher accepted after years of failing, uh, meaning they didn't like what I was writing and they said, try again. They finally said to me, wow, you've done it. We don't know what you did, but you finally figured out your voice, meaning what is it the narration on the page going to sound like for this book. So um I have a particular fondness for this chapter. So yeah, um definition of success super narrow coming out of the hamster wheel of of my upbringing with my family um I and and my insecurities being a black person who'd been told I was Constantly going to have to prove myself worthy to white folks. Those were the, you know, the microaggressions I've, I've referenced. Um, so I was just trying to never be called the N word again, trying to be the model Negro, trying to sort of be the black person who defies all the stereotypes. And I'm just blowing past the depth of those stories. Cause that's not what this podcast is about, but for anyone listening, you know, whether it's race or gender or sexual orientation or other aspects of your identity, maybe you can relate. So like your definition of success is do other people like me, you know, or mm-hmm. am I meeting the standards other people seem to set and too often, particularly in hamster wheel communities. Um, it's, you got to get into the quote unquote right college. And there are apparently 20 of those, um, only, um, uh, and of course I don't believe that at all. Um, you have to major in the right thing. Um, let's see, engineering, pre-med law, entrepreneurship, you know, finance, that's it. Um, then you have to go be one of those, uh, career people. And, um, that's what I kind of believed. Um, And then when I was miserable doing that thing, you know, highly successful, brand name college, brand name law school, making lots of money, but my insides are just feeling like they're getting eaten. Um, I had to examine, well, wait a minute. What, why am I pursuing this stuff that I thought was going to make me feel great about my life, but ends up making me feel really pained? Why am I doing this? And I realized. I was not listening to my own voice. And I really described this in chapter five, instead of hearing my own voice, that is to say, as I contemplate things in my mind, what do I want? What am I good at? What do I want out of this life? Instead of my own voice, what was was turned up high volume wise in my mind were the voices of other people. The voices of society writ large, the voices of my family members, the voices of my peers, the voices of the media, like all those external voices telling me what's correct to do or what's, and I'm doing air quotes now, what's right to do, what's important to pursue. Um, I was just trying desperately to please all of those voices and learned in the space of this misery that I should try to jettison those voices out of my mind and instead let my path be guided by a deeply intimate, personal, internal sense of, why am I on this planet? What am I good at and what do I love? And what is the intersection of what I'm good at and what I love? Because that's the secret to meaningful, rewarding work. You gotta be good at it in order to Make a living at it. You got to also love it, or else if you're just good at it and you don't love it, you'll feel like a drone going through the motions in your own life. So that was the aha moment that I had on the concrete slab of my back porch when I was a brand new, young corporate lawyer professional. I learned that nine months in, it would take me four years to segue to a different type of work. But for three years, I was making a concerted effort to move toward greater joy in my working life.
0: And at that point you ended up at Stanford. Is that right?
1: I did. I, you know, here I was in Silicon Valley. I had gone to Stanford undergrad, went back East to law school. Now I'm out here. I'm at a Silicon Valley law firm down the street from Stanford. My house is on the other side of Stanford. Um, So I'm constantly seeing my alma mater and its buildings, you know, as I drive to and from home and work. And I thought, okay, I mean, why didn't I pivot back to um, civil rights law, let's say? I mean, I think that's the obvious question. Um, And the sad answer is, I felt like such a sellout at that point. I felt, even though I had gone to law school to do that work, I had now gone corporate, which made me a sellout. I was sure that anyone who had gone into work on behalf of battered women or juvenile defendants or civil rights more broadly, would look at me askance, like, yeah, we're not going to hire you because you went corporate. I just, I was so caught up in my own shame around that, that I did not pursue public interest law. So I left the law behind, um, and, or my intention was, and in fact I did, um, and tried to get work at my alma mater. I thought if I could work, if I could help students make better choices about their life path, then you know, maybe I'm somehow taking my lessons learned the hard way and making someone else's life a little easier. And so I was an administrator. I tried and failed three times to get work at Stanford um, uh, in various offices, but finally caught a lucky break and filled in for someone on maternity leave, which was sort of a window opening that I pushed further open and crawled through and it turned into a 14-year career. Uh, first as dean of students at the law school and then as a member of the president's office and then ultimately dean of freshmen for 10 years which is what then led me to write how to raise an adult
0: so many places to go from here okay so let's talk about some more of chapter five because you talk about getting clear on who you are and what you want what advice do you have to young people and parents of young people for how to go about that.
1: So I actually describe in the book, I describe it in my narrative, but then we have a little piece of artwork, a piece of paper drawn like with my handwritten notes drawn by my colleague Clarice Cho, um, who's an artist I work with. I actually did an exercise to try to pull my inner voice up and out of the places it was hiding and force it to sort of declare what it wanted and knew to be true. So I think this is a really valuable exercise, which is why it's in the book. You get out a piece of paper or you know, jot it down on your phone and wherever you write things. Uh, back in the day when I did it, it was like 1995. So all <laughs> we have, we didn't have laptops and and smartphones. Um, uh, but write it down. You take, you're making two lists, basically. Side by side lists. On the left side, what are you good at? On the right side, what do you love? And brainstorm. And a brainstorming exercise it has to be free of judgment. Brainstorm means whatever idea pops to mind, just write it down. Do not say, oh, well, I could never do that. And so therefore I'm going to erase that. No, no, no. You know, what am I good at? Write it down. Brainstorm. Just let your brain go wild. Write down what it offers you. This is your inner voice speaking. Okay. The other side of the line, what do I love? And that's another brainstorm. And that, you know, just brainstorm uh, on my list. What do I love? Cheeseburgers, red wine, good fiction. Dan, my now partner of 33 years, Stanford. The point is, you're looking for an intersection of the lists. And I realized in doing that exercise and getting clear about myself that working with humans, which was on the what am I good at? You know, I like to work with humans. I like to help people. I like to solve people's pro help people solve their problems. I like to, right? I was looking for an intersection. Okay, people work with people, and what's on the other side of the list? You know. Stanford was popping out as like a location and space and institution uh, where I might really enjoy working with people. Um, So I think you got to do that brainstorming list. And then, of course, once you start to get some clues, another another way to brainstorm it is just ask yourself, pretend nobody is watching. What would you do with your life? Pretend nobody is judging, by which I mean, you know, I'm not trying to f- foment illicit behavior here. I'm saying, like, if it didn't matter to anybody else, if nobody else's opinion mattered, what would you do for work? Often freeing ourselves of all of that, you know, the sort of straitjacket and corset of other people's plans for you, if you could just pretend that those things didn't matter. And of course, in the grand scheme, those things don't matter. But it's hard to tell a young person that you've got to say, like, let's just pretend they don't matter for a moment, write down what you would do. And then you want to be analyzing those data for yourself and saying, well, gee, you know, is this really outlandish? Or is this kind of landish? You know, could I, could I maybe do this? If I want to be someone who's a whitewater river rafting guide, who's to say that that's not legitimate? your parents may want you to be on wall street, but if you're an outdoors person, you need to get a job outdoors. So, you know, this is, this brainstorming is, is a way to begin to root for what you actually want out of this one wild and precious life. And here I'm very deliberately quoting the late poet, Mary Oliver. She said, tell me, what are you going to do with this one wild and precious life? And I really like to speak with people in those terms. Like, What are you waiting for? It's one and done. This one life, it's yours. It's no one else's. You are not here to perform for someone else or be a pet project of someone else. You are you. Your job is to figure you out and go be you. It doesn't get any more profound or basic than that. So that's what I'm trying to help people unpack and think through in Chapter 5.
0: That is amazing advice for young people. So useful and just just incredibly helpful. But here's the rub, and I think you know this, and my audience might get mad at me. I don't care. Parents. Parents get in the way of that, right? I, I loved what you said. I think it was in your TED talk. My kids aren't bonsai trees. They're wildflowers. Yeah. I love that quote because it's yeah. true. And and look, I'm guilty of it too. When my kids were little, I was a, as you call it, a snowplow parent. I was one of those parents who wanted to mold them and, and shelter or not shelter, but shepherd them along, maybe shelter too. How do we get
1: parents to change that mindset? Well, look, let me admit, cause we haven't yet had that confessional on this podcast <laughs> with me and you, I was, and in some ways still am that helicopter parent. I wrote the book and gave the Ted talk, you know, among, and I'm one of many who talk about this. Because I saw it. I saw the negative effects of helicopter parenting in underbaked young adults, being a college dean. But then it turns out I'm overparenting my own kids. And so now I'm working concertedly within my own family dynamic. I've told you I've got a 21 year old and a 19 year old, one of whom was far more overparented than the other due to age and stage and their personalities and what my partner and I knew as we were raising them. Okay. We are working at repatterning. I've got a 21 year old with a lot of anxiety, some of which is a reflection of my anxiety and need to control and help with every little thing he does. Okay. So I'm here with a sort of expertise. I'm also a parent. I have seen it in other people's kids and other families. I'm seeing it in my own. When we have to micromanage our kids, and let's just put a pin in that. We call it snowplow parenting. We call it helicopter parenting. Lawnmower, all of that. What we really mean, if, if you're looking for what it actually is, just think about micromanagement in the workplace and how awful it feels. Yeah. That's what overparenting is. Okay. So when we are micromanagers as bosses, and when we are micromanagers as parents, it speaks to an insecurity, and anxiety within us our need for control reflects we don't feel safe if we're not in control we're worried that if we're not doing it we're not entirely in charge then something bad will happen there's an arrogance and an insecurity embedded in it and we need therapy for that so my first piece of advice for parents is go get help go get therapy learn to develop much healthier boundaries between you and your child your child is not your bonsai tree not a botanical specimen for you to sculpt and mold and parade around as your achievement. Your child is not a dog that you're entering in a dog show, trying to win best in breed. Your child is a precious individual human given to you by the universe or God, or however you believe we arrive here. And your job is to love and shelter and feed that person, instill a work ethic, instill good character, And step the heck out of their way and let them become who they're uniquely situated to be. It ultimately is about a profound respect for the individuality of your child. You have no idea what they want to do with this life. They. Sense that deep within them. And our job is to allow that to blossom rather than try to nip and tuck and fix and handle and make their life happen the way we think it ought to. So, in my book, In Your Turn, I'm giving young adults, because these are now my book is pitched at, you know, 18 plus. I'm giving those folks advice on how do you have these respectful conversations with your parents? It's hard for a kid to say, go get therapy. I heard this lady on a podcast and she thinks (laughs) you need therapy, right? I'm saying that parent to parent. For young people, I say, look, you know, you can say to your folks, Hey folks, I know you love me. I love you. Or whatever words of respect and gratitude you can offer. Every family speaks differently to one another. Some people don't use the word love. Some people do, right? Whatever you can offer. I know you love me, or I know you've, you're, you've, you've given me strong values and a great foundation. And I appreciate that gratitude. Okay. Then you say, you know, I'd love to talk about your ideas and hopes for how my life is going to unfold. And I'd love to share my thoughts with you too. And, um, and then after listening to your parents and doing good active listening about what they want and what they expect and what they think you're good at, you smile and say, okay, you know, and here are my thoughts, you know, and I know you may not understand it or you may not appreciate it or accept it, but I've come to appreciate I'm 18. Now I'm 19, I'm 22, I'm 25, I'm 27, whatever it is, it's my life. And I've, gotta try to make a go at this. And even if you don't understand it, I hope you can at least love me as I try. I think being able to stand up to your parents and say, this is this type of school I want to attend. This is the type of study I want to pursue is knowing that they may not approve is in some ways the biggest declaration an adult can make. Now, if your parents are paying your way, Handling all your bills. I mean, it's hard to be this independent, I'm in charge of my own life person if you're kind of, you know, expecting them to take care of everything financially. So the key is move out from under, you know, start to earn your own living, move to a place where you're whatever you're doing for your living will pay the bills in that area. You know, it's going to be hard to be an artist and a painter that your parents don't want you to be if you are living in one of the most expensive cities in America and you need someone else to pay your rent, right? You've, if you're going to go be that artist, you need to move to Knoxville, you need to move to Auburn, you need to move to you know, whatever community it is where you can afford to do your art and pay your rent. And fortunately, that is possible in so many places. It's all about choices. And when you're guided by that inner voice saying, you know what, this is what brings me joy. This is how I wanna to contribute to my community, to our world. Um, you know it starts to build this velocity you know you start to f- build this momentum like I'm gonna go do it I am going to do it I'm Anne-Marie Kelly Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big digging in and connecting
0: across distance division and loss in each episode I talk with prize-winning writers musicians and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have so meet me here Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be
1: wild, precious, and brave.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the TED Talk? Because I've watched it numerous times, and parents out there, I am putting the link in the show notes. You have got to watch this TED Talk. If you watch one TED Talk in your life, it's how to raise successful kids without overparenting. And Julie, I love that you talked
1: about the checklisted childhood. Can you talk about that here a little bit? Sure thing. I think it speaks really well to your hamster wheel concept. Um, So this is a term I coined back when I was writing How to Raise an Adult. This was a book I worked on in 2012, 2013, 2014. It came out in 2015. Um, And uh, the TED Talk was in 2016. Um, And it was my conception of how to describe the changes and how childhood had really changed it had gone from being in my day and your day, the purview of children, that is children played, they found children to play with after school. They was sort of like, where are the bikes? That's where the kids are. It didn't require any adult intervention. Um, uh, you know, we didn't have kids sort of stacked to the hilt with activities and test prep and all of that. So, um, the checklist of childhood stands in contrast to a more free range childhood of yore, and it is, it is composed of um, the right school, whether public or private, um, uh, the right classes in the right school, the right grades in the right classes at the right school the right test scores and doing what is necessary to improve those test scores. There's a lot of financial privilege often associated with the checklist of childhood. It costs money to improve those scores. But it's Grades and scores are just the beginning in this childhood. There's also all the accolades we need our kids to achieve and all the awards we hope they'll get and all the sports they need to do and all the activities they have to do and all the leadership. And don't forget community service, because that matters to an admissions dean. All of this checklist of childhood stuff is ultimately we say it's best for the kids. We say it's for their enrichment. But what we really are saying is Colleges seem to require that our children fill their childhoods with this stuff. Therefore, in order to get our kid into the right college, we have to take away the healthy childhood that entails a lot of free play, a lot of downtime, a lot of time with family, regular meals. Good sleep. We need to take that away because colleges don't reward that. Colleges reward our kid being stacked to the hilt and having no free time and, ha- and being sort of a perfect specimen on paper. So the checklisted childhood is in furtherance of the child getting into the right college. And I'm here to tell you from the vantage point of having worked at one of the right colleges, quote unquote, in people's minds um, kids arrive there, if they've come out of a checklisted childhood, they're brittle, they're fragile. They're old before their time. They're not very aware of their own self. They're very aware of what they need to do to please others, but they haven't been permitted to dream for themselves, which is such a deprivation. So I remember one student who came to see me because she had no idea what to major in. No idea whatsoever. And no idea whatsoever was unusual. I worked with students who had four or five different interests and couldn't narrow it down. Um, But to have no idea perplexed me. And so I was poking around looking for evidence like, okay, well, what did you really love studying in high school? And she just sort of laughed like, love, you know? And she was being funny, she thought, but I was getting increasingly irritated with this young person because as she shared with me, her profound lack of heartfelt connection to her amazing achievements. She was at Stanford University after all. I got annoyed. I started thinking, why are we admitting these people? Like This is a waste of a spot. This person has jumped through the hoops, gone through the motions. She even went so far as to say, I have a patent, um, actually. As I was, again, trying to poke around and find some level of deep interest that might lead to a major, you know, so I'm asking, well, what'd you love in high school? Right. What activities did you do? Or what are you really passionate about? Like, what do you love to stay up all night reading about or learning about? And she sort of shrugged her shoulders and said, well, I have a patent. And I was like, okay, there's, I mean, that's a lot of work. Tell me more. She's like, yeah, it's for a thermodynamic device. And, um, you know, and I was like, okay, so what are you doing with that? And she's like, oh, nothing. You know, I just did it to get into college. She was a human who was going through the motions of being a human. So disconnected from what she might actually want to do with her life. Because she was simply a function of a system. So I, I was profound, just going to say, I felt like, sorry who's, for her. I felt Who's sorry accountable her. here, right? Like who? Um, I think parents, but also I think colleges, right? Somehow. Yep. The fact that a few kids happen to have, you know, come close to curing cancer, and that's whose colleges admitted. And I'm tongue in cheek here; like, no kid has cured cancer, but like the singular noteworthy achievement concept, like we will consider you for admission to our university if you have a singular noteworthy achievement, meaning you're best in the country at something or best internationally. Come on, they're seventeen or eighteen years old. Come on. Why have we allowed a system to perpetuate and turn into this arms race of like, well, last year you had to have a 4.35 to get in from this high school. So you're going to need to have a 4.36 this year and next, you know, in three years, it'll be a 4.4, right? It's just getting progressively worse. But what hasn't changed? There's still only 24 hours in a day. Kids still need eight to nine hours of sleep every day. Kids still need to play freely in order to develop cognitively and to develop social emotional skills and to learn how to interact with their fellow humans. Like the the things that haven't changed are totally being compromised in the checklist of childhood. So often we get this as parents, Betsy, when our kid has a mental health breakdown, like then we're like, okay, fine. You know, although I'm going to tell you, there are parents whose kid is in the hospital with severe anxiety or depression or suicidal ideation. And the parents bring the homework to the hospital. Oh my God. Where the parents still don't get it. In fact, there's a wonderful documentary out called chasing childhood, um, which is all about these topics. And I encourage you to get your hands on a copy. If you can chasing childhood, you can find it on the web. And there's a mom in that beautiful documentary who says, you know, I brought my daughter's college applications to the hospital. And that mother is trying to rationalize, like, I knew she really wanted to go to college, even though she was struggling with her mental health. My point is college will always be there. College will be there next year. College will be delighted for you to apply when you have one more year's worth of life lived. You'll write better essays as a result. You'll have more to talk about. But for these parents, it's like, no, no, no. Like, even though you're hanging by a thread to your mental health, you need to do this essay. And again, it goes back to, okay, parents, what is going on for you such that you are so unable, unwilling, incapable of attending to the wellness of your child such that you need to get them into this college. You need to make sure they go. You need that bumper sticker for the back of your car to impress all of your friends with how amazing you are because your kid is at that school. And I sound blunt right now. And I am blunt because I'm rooting for kids to make it, which entails in part being mentally well. But I'm also here with a heart of the parent who has made those choices that I regret. I am the parent who went to the highly, you know, touted college and law school and raised my kids in Silicon Valley and met my husband at this highly touted college and gave birth to my children at this highly touted college's hospital and sent them to nursery school there Because I wanted to facilitate them getting in there because all I wanted was that. And as my own children began to struggle with the hamster wheel, I finally, in my son's sophomore year, was able to put his mental health over the value the school espoused, which was you will have five hours of homework as a sophomore. Mm. Um, And when I do my keynote on the subject, I tell that story and I still cry almost every single time. Because my kid looked up at me when I finally had the courage to say, do you think you might need to drop a class because this workload is crushing you? He looked at me and said, can I? He was in bed. It was midnight. I said, do you think you might need to drop a class? Secretly hoping he was going to say, no, mom, I'm fine. After watching him struggle for weeks with this workload as a 15-year-old. And he looked at me and he said, drop a class. Can I? Don't y'all want me to do all of this? Mom, don't I have to? Isn't it what'll make you proud?
0: (sighs) (sighs) My heart hurts listening to that.
1: Well, the good news is I was able to say to my son, Because in my head, I was thinking, well, we bought this house here so you can go to that school and take all of these classes and do very, very well. And my son was doing very, very well, Betsy. But the workload was sucking the life out of him. Okay. So I was able to keep those thoughts private in my head about all that I had dreamed and hoped for. And instead, I just looked at him and I said, sweetheart, in some theoretical world, dad and I wanted you to have access to these opportunities. But what matters more than any of that is you and you're struggling. You might even be suffering. Do you think you might wanna drop a class? And his eyes brightened halfway, just being seen in the struggle. And he said, Mom, I'll think about it. And he went on to drop a class. And I, that night, accepted that my son might not be an attractive candidate at some of the most highly selective places because he dropped a class or because he doesn't do any sports or activities. I mean, this kid just reads voraciously and is so full of curiosity and, you know, intellectually agile. And unfortunately that doesn't impress colleges. Yeah. And why isn't that that enough? Why Why isn't that enough? The point is there are plenty of colleges that do. It's just the most highly selective elite ones have decided on top of all that, you have to play sports and do activities and cure cancer. I mean, I joke about that, but that seems to be where we're headed, that you won't get into one of the most selective places unless you've cured cancer. Well, I am here as a parent saying, to hell with that. That's fine. Let that be for some other kids who can pull that off and have their mental health and wellness intact. More power to you. My kid couldn't. I didn't want to push that. You know, there are plenty of great schools, and I'm a huge fan of the smaller liberal arts colleges, that are the ones that aren't impossible to get into. Um, where faculty are there to teach and mentor young people who make the time to teach and sit down and ask good questions and listen and push you toward a greater understanding of yourself. Small liberal arts colleges, the honors college at a big public university, these are places where great teaching and mentoring happens. And study after study shows that it's the mentoring you get in college, meaning someone gives a damn about you and can give you an hour Occasionally to listen. You know, it's the mentoring that facilitates your being successful in life, being successful in your career. So we want to, you know, point our kids in the direction of where are the institutions where you can get great mentoring, not which are the institutions that have the highest entering SAT scores and ACT scores and GPAs of the freshmen.
0: So does that list exist? Yeah. I'm, I'm literally like, can you yes. search college, you know, cause Princeton doesn't yes. have it, I'm sure, but. Yeah. Okay. So colleges
1: that change lives, ctcl.org are 40 small schools, um, that meet these criteria. CTCL colleges that change lives, that's c-t-c-l. ctcl.org. That's a much better list. They have a website. They have a book that they update pretty regularly. Um, the alumni factor is a really fascinating, um, um, set of data on alumni outcomes at 225 different schools from you know income and net worth to happiness and and interpersonal relationships to intellectual curiosity and and overall thriving it ranks schools um, based on uh how their alumni self report they're doing in life without the alumni ever knowing their inadvertently ranking their school as a result it's a wonderful methodology and you can get that online on amazon i'm not a big proponent of amazon but it happens to be the one place this book lives right now as they're retooling the company to try to really come back strong in the face of u.s news a world report which tries to drown them out so the alumni factor go online for that um um yeah those are two examples of of better lists
0: This is mind blowing. And and what's really cool about this is you've been there. You've been in higher ed. You've been on, I hate to say it, but that side of the fence. Yeah. And you know it's broken. Yeah. But it, it's not going to change, is it?
1: Well, what has to change is that we're desperate to have our kids go to Princeton. Where are you located, Betsy? I'm in Florida. The big right. school here is UF, University right, of Florida. Right, exactly. All right. So we want our kid to go to UF, or we want our kid to go to University of Miami, or we want our kid to go, you know, whatever it is, right? We have these hopes and dreams. Um, what What's really important is look more deeply at what you're looking for. Are you looking for strong athletics plus strong academics? There are the impossible to get in schools in that category, the you know, less impossible, kind of possible, you know, that you, you can, you can draw up your list of like, okay, what's the safety? What's the reach in that category? Are you looking for a really strong, proud, will do anything for you? If you went to this school alumni network, there are the impossible schools to get into that have that. And there are also the much more possible to get into schools that offer that. In other words, instead of just looking at brand names, try to drill more deeply into as a human, as a child, as a student and family, what is it that I'm looking for in a college? Do I want to be in a big city where the world is my oyster, where the boundaries between the campus and the city just bleed into one another or do I want to be in a rarefied environment that feels like it's set apart from the world and the only people I interact with are the people at this college or do I want something in between, you know, how much does weather matter to me? How much does proximity from home matter? Do I want to be really close? Do I want to be far? What am I, you know, there, there are, all of these variables will help you sort out the differences between schools. And if you can afford it outside of a pandemic, Visiting and talking to actual humans who go there, not the people who give the tour, but visiting the student union, going to that plaza or that boulevard or that grassy green where the students hang out, and saying, going up to one and saying, "Hey, um, I'm, you know, I'm visiting. I'm thinking of coming here. Would you mind my asking, you know, why you like this school, um, and see what they say, and then your second question should be." Um, and what's one thing you would change if you could and how quickly it takes a student to spout off their list of grievances will tell you a lot. They might be like, Oh, don't get me started on it. Right. Just take note that tells you that's sort of a lovely in, in way to ask, you know, how students feel about the place. Um, if they have a hard time coming up with things they'd fix or change, that's a great indicator. And I would try to have that conversation with three different students on the campus, because you never know if you're coming across someone who's having a particularly bad or good day. So in other words, do your due diligence, do your research, try to lean into like, what am I resonating with about this school? And as parents, what we need to be doing is supporting our kids and going for those safety schools so that they're not just feeling like losers at the end of a process that uh, seems to reject so many um getting excited about the safety school and um and being delighted audibly when other people's kids it's like oh this person's going to such and such don't just let your eyes widen with delight when that person's going to a top 25 or top 40 you know school according to the rankings like don't demonstrate a respect only for those who seem to have beaten these odds demonstrate a respect for all kids having found a spot at a place where they can thrive and be genuinely honestly, authentically delighted for kids. Let your let your kids hear you go. <gasps> that person's going to the University of South Florida. Is there, I think there's a University of South Florida, right? Yes, there is, yep. I, I thought so, okay. okay. That person's going, to, excellent, I'm so happy for them. Smile, say it, mean it. Yep, and I'll take that one
0: step further. I've stopped asking teenagers where they're going to college. Well, My exactly. new, my new yeah. question is, what are your plans after high school?
1: Right, exactly. And be happy regardless of what right. they say. We you
0: know, should be
1: celebrating it, it no matter exactly. what they're and doing. If they shrug and they're like, I have no idea. Don't have a look on your face that's like, oh, poor you. Just smile right. and say, hey, sometimes it takes us a little longer to figure things out. Go get, go get a job. You'll learn a thing or two. You know, like just keep rooting for that kid. Okay. And yes, I love that you've stopped asking kids. And I, I call these taboo questions. We shouldn't ask other people's kids um or our kids friends um are you taking the sat or the act private not your business uh which colleges are you going to be visiting private not your business um are you playing early or are you playing regular private not your business okay we need to stop trading our kids data around this private stuff as if somehow we're just talking about stocks in the stock market like oh you know i hear intel's up oh i hear you know apple's down you know like stop other than who they have a crush on other than their most intimate personal relationships all of this college business is the most private thing they've got going on in their lives for most of them and it is none of our business and we need to change the cultural mores in our in our community around the fact that parents we need parents to stop doing that it is simply inappropriate. We want to be able to, if someone asks you, like, what's your kid going to do? Like, where are you visiting? What the, Just smile and say, you know what? We've come to realize that those are such stressful things to talk about and worry about. We're trying to just center our family life around our connections with each other. We know that college will happen wherever they go. I'm sure they're going to be fine. We're just focusing on things like dinner and game night and you know, being physically well and right. And just say that with a smile and toss your head back and let your friend be envious of how chill and unstressed out you are relatively speaking that we need to just bring the stress level back down. It has just gotten out of control and it's harming our kids. If I could hug you through the microphone
0: right now, I'm sure that I I would.
1: I can feel it. I'm hugging you back. I'm hugging everybody listening. (sighs) Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you're right. We're all in it together. That's the other thing, you know, and social media don't even get me started, but the look at me's and the, here's what my kid is doing. We all want our kids to succeed. We all want our kids to be happy and feel loved and be mentally well, but there's so much circus as I call it that happens through social media these days. I feel for our kids and I feel for parents whose kids are really struggling
1: Absolutely. Although when our kids are struggling, we find each other, and then we can say, you know what, I'm dealing with that too. You know, my kid was hospitalized. My kid was is in an alternative school. My kid has started, you know, doing this therapy. We share information with one another. There's a whole community of folks whose circumstance maybe isn't broadly known, um, but once we join that community, we discover that we are not alone, and. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, when the bad thing happens, that's when we finally figure out what matters. (laughs) That's when we're finally like, you know what? All I want is for that kid to be able to get out of bed and, you know, get some things done today that they feel good about. And it's not about what college, it's not about what grades. All of that we come to realize when they struggle significantly is so secondary or doesn't even matter at all. I've gone from being oh, you know, my incredibly smart children have to go to one of these big brand name schools to one of my incredibly smart children is not in school right now and is taking time off. And there were, there was a year or two or a year, he's he's in his second year off when I, and I, I have his permission to talk about elements of his life. So don't don't worry that I'm now like being inappropriate in terms of sharing and I'm sharing for the purpose of helping others. So I, I, when he first took time off at the end of sophomore year of college, I used language like, okay, he's taking a year off, which implies he's going back. Um, and then it was, well, he might not go back. In my mind, it was, uh, maybe he won't go back there. He'll find a better fit. Now I'm in the space of, you know what? I don't know what awaits you know, my child when it comes to next steps. That's for him to decide. We're here to love the heck out of this kid help him rebuild a, a stronger foundation of wellness and um, a clearer sense of what he wants, not what we want or what society wants. And I'm rooting for that kid to figure it out and find his way. And when he gets there to the place of, you know, a real sort of mental health and wellness stability, which I trust is coming and I'm working hard to be the parent who will support that rather than my own needs getting in the way or expectations. I'm going to be the happiest parent, you know, just to see my kid smiling at me and waving and like, I've got this, you know, instead of like worrying obsessively about, well, where is he going to school and what grades is he getting? So I've charted, I can chart my own progress. And it's been a a difficult emotional journey, but ultimately one of seeing this, loving the kid I've got, seeing him completely for who he is and uh, embracing him and, and just wanting, Wanting to see him make his way instead of feeling like I have to help steer him or, or manufacture futures for him and that kind of thing.
0: That is a great lesson for us all. See our kids and love them for who they are, not for what we hope them to be or want them to be or expect them to be. That's such a strong message.
1: Betsy, let me offer one final story um, yeah. in this in this space because what we're supposed to do versus not supposed to do is kind of the question. You know, we want to be involved parents. Of course, we just don't want to be so over-involved that we end up appearing to care more about their life than, than we give them credit for. Um, I got a call from a mom who said, Julie, I, I love your work. I figured it out. I've got two sons. She said, one is my biological son the eldest, the younger is my adopted son. And my older son is in a therapeutic boarding school. He's 17. He's a senior. We have family therapy once a week over the phone. This was before COVID. And she said this week, my son said to me in family therapy, mom, every time you ask, have you done your homework? Every time you say, when are you going to do your homework? Every time you say, did you turn that in? Every time you say, you know, don't forget this. It makes me feel that you don't think I can or will ever be able to do these things for myself. And my therapist suggests that maybe I'm rebelling against you because that's the only way I can at least be in charge. So the son tells the mom this. The mom calls me. She's like, Julie, I get it. I so get it. My son was 100% dead on, right? I do all that constant nagging and reminding. I'm just trying to be helpful. I'm just trying to make sure he's okay. But I realize he's my biological kid. Half of his genetic makeup is mine. Therefore, I feel responsible for where he goes to school and what he majors in and what he does with his life. I feel like that's a reflection on me. Like I have to make sure he performs well for me. With my adopted son, I don't feel responsible for who she, this is her, what's going on in this lady's head. Like she's broken it down to like genetic versus non. With my adopted son, I love him just as much. I just don't feel like I'm responsible for who he becomes because he's not mine genetically. I just love the heck out of that kid and root for him to be successful at what matters to him. She says, Julie, I realize I have the more healthy relationship with my adopted kid than I do with my biological kid. And I thought this was such profound insight. Okay. And it, for some people, if you can't sort of hear the, if if the adopted versus biological distinction she was making about her own need to control one, but not the other, doesn't make sense. Think about your nieces and nephews. Think about when a niece or nephew is struggling in chemistry, you don't feel the need to argue with the chemistry teacher or sit beside them as they do the test prep for chemistry, you know, they come home and they're like, oh, I just failed a chemistry test. And you don't feel that sort of, what are we going to do? We need to do well in chemistry. So we get to the right college. If they're your niece or nephew or your best friend's kid, you're going to say, oh no, that sucks. I'm so sorry. You poor thing. How can I support you? You know, and maybe you say like, I'm here if you need me. Like, I know a thing or two about chemistry. I'm always here for you, but let's talk about what's going good in your life. Like, what about those guitar lessons you love so much? How's that going? Like, you demonstrate empathy. You demonstrate respect. You also demonstrate the world is not going to end because this kid happens to be struggling in chemistry today. And that kid is more likely to sit with you and take an interest in what you have to say because they feel seen by you. How can we achieve that? beautiful, emotional closeness, yet healthy psychological distance from the thing with our own actual children. That's our task.
0: Amen. That sums it up beautifully. Ugh, this has been just, I, I don't even have the word. I'm speechless and I'm never speechless. I am so grateful to you for being so open and vulnerable and just so much wisdom and insight personally and professionally that you shared. I'm I'm just beyond grateful.
1: Well, this has been really fun. I appreciate you making the time and space for us to have this conversation. You know, I'm just here rooting for humans and trying to help us move the obstacles out of our way. And sometimes we are in our own way. Lord, don't I know that one. (laughs) I have learned that lesson still working on it, but, um, but I really appreciate your support of my work and your fangirling. And as you said to me at the beginning, I really, it it puts a smile on my face and I'm very grateful to you and, and to your community, to everyone who's listened. And I'm just grateful and hope you'll take an interest in my work and buy the book for someone you love, a young adult,
0: you yes. love, a lot of
1: parents and young adults are reading it together, I'm told, um, which astonishes parents like, I can't believe my 18-year-old son is wanting to read this book with me and talk with me about it. It looks like it may be a tool that facilitates um, the having of some important conversations, which just delights me. Oh, that sounds great.
0: So I know people are going to want to seek you out and follow you and all that, so website social media where do you want people to find
1: you yeah thanks so my website is kind of the central place dot com. it's my name without the hyphen dot com from there you can learn about my work my books my events uh, my social handles are jlifcott I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, maybe even TikTok one day, who knows? Um, I'm developing a membership club, not yet out, probably launch that in May or June. That's going to be a place to go deeper into this space of vulnerable sharing about the stuff we're working on, whether it's adulting or over-parenting or developing that self-love that I know who I am and I'm going to be this person. Um, So yeah, check me out and um, I look forward to connecting.
0: Okay. I will put all of those links in the show notes. Thank you thank again
1: you. so much. I'm so grateful. I am too. I'm grateful to you, Betsy, and to everyone listening. Everyone be well. Let's, let's try to be kind to ourselves and to each other and to our kids. Okay.
0: So much to unpack after that conversation. But before I do, I first want to say thank you again to my incredible guest, Julie Lithcott-Hames. There was so much that resonated with me during this conversation. Some of it was a bit uncomfortable to hear and to own up to, but all that said, I am totally on board with everything Julie said. As parents, we need to help our kids get clear on who they are and what they want, not what we want for them. We need to see our kids for who they really are. I love Julie's description of our kids. They aren't bonsai trees. They're wildflowers. That's going on my whiteboard, by the way. There is so much pressure on our kids to be all that and do all the things. We can't control what happens in college admissions or out in the world, but we can make an intentional effort to help our kids find meaningful, rewarding work, and most of all, encourage them to stop pleasing others, including us. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm glad you're here, and I'd be grateful if you would subscribe to the High School Hamster Wheel podcast in your favorite podcast player. I welcome your feedback and would love to hear any ideas you have for future episodes. All links and references mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes at highschoolhamsterwheel.com 75. Be sure to follow the High School Hamster Wheel podcast on Facebook and join me and my co-host, Jay Dusold, in our Life After 12th Facebook group where we provide help and encouragement for parents of career-confused teens and 20-somethings. That wraps it up for today. I'll be back soon with another episode of the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.